Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. This, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, unity, top. And we have engine start. And liftoff. Décollage. Décollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. On the 25th of December 2021, the James Webb Space Telescope launched for a 20-year mission exploring our solar system, solar systems around other stars and distant galaxies in greater detail than we've ever seen. It can see objects in space 100 times fainter than the Hubble Space Telescope could. In today's episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, we're going to hear from two of the project scientists at NASA behind the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm Andrew Glester, and if you've heard any of these episodes before, when we've talked to astronomers over the last two or three years and beyond, then you'll know that the answer to the question, when will we know more, is when the James Webb Space Telescope launches. Well, now it has. And the telescope, which looks something like a boat with a sail on it, is 20 metres by 14 metres in its largest point. That's the sun shield. And the main telescope's diameter is 6.5 metres. It's on its way now to L2, one of the points in space where, because of orbital mechanics and the way that gravity works, spacecraft can be balanced between the pull of the gravity of the Earth and the pull of the gravity of the Sun. The telescope has had to unfurl once it's in space, and we'll hear all about that, the journey to Lagrange 2, and what we can expect to see beyond that right now as we go to NASA to hear from those two project scientists. I'm Jonathan Gardner. I am the Deputy Senior Project Scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. I've worked on the project in my current role for almost 20 years, starting in 2002. And uh, my role on the project, or generally the the role of the project scientist team, is to watch over the science of the observatory. As we have gone through the process of building it, we need to make sure that the engineers and managers are building the right, the, the things that will do the best science. And now, in the exciting part, with the, with the launch and the commissioning, uh, we continue that, that process of watching over the science. I'll now hand it over to my colleague, Stephanie Milam, who um, was, during the process of developing the observatory, we realized that about 10 years ago, that um, Webb was going to be very powerful in the solar system for studying solar system objects, and we needed to bring an expert onto the team. So I'll turn it over to Stephanie. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, So I'm Stephanie Milam. I'm the Deputy Project Scientist Planetary Science on the James Webb Space Telescope, um, as was just sort of introduced. Um, And I have been on the project for about a decade. So, the the gist of my role, um, well, yes, making sure we have solar system science uh, capabilities with the James Webb Space Telescope was um, to make sure that we could actually do these observations in a, in 
in a way that uh, the telescope wasn't originally designed to do. So we have this massive, extremely sensitive, floppy telescope, you know, that's designed to look at the first stars and galaxies across the universe. And I want to look at the brightest thing in the infrared sky that's, you know, flying by the Earth. Um, so we have to be able to track targets that move with respect to the stars um, and other galaxies, uh, things like Mars or any other planets, but also things like comets and near Earth asteroids, um, as well as making sure that we had capability to look at these really, really, really bright objects. Um, so making sure we had modes with our instruments that we wouldn't saturate everything and, and not have that capability. Okay, so I'm a amateur astronomer. I have a telescope in my back garden. If I'm looking at a planetary nebula or something, and then I want to turn to look at the moon, I'm going to have to really refocus the telescope. Is that something you're going to have to do with JWST? So it's not a focus um, per se. Uh, basically what we're, we're doing is um, we'll, we'll be tracking an object that's bright and big, um, but we have subarrays on our cameras. So basically we're not exploiting the full, you know, sensitivity and capability, all the pixels um, so that, you know, we can detect really, really, really faint things. Uh, we only need a handful of them, so some subcomponent, and that's how we actually do our imaging and spectroscopy. Uh, we usually don't need to have any any major um, concerns, um, unless it is something like Mars, in which case we have to make sure we use the right resolution so that we're not saturating the spectra. How do you decide who gets time on the the telescope? Are the astronomers all over the world sort of clambering over each other. You know, I want time on it. I want to point it in this direction, etc. <laughs> so I'll take that. It is a competition and um, it's a very hard fought competition. So what we do is uh, once a year, we put out a call for proposals and scientists around the world uh, will form their teams and write their very best proposals. So a proposal contains a description of the science question that they want to answer and how Webb will do that. Um, and then also a detailed description of the observations themselves, how long of an exposure, which filters, which, which of the four instruments. Sometimes we can use two instruments at once and um, sometimes a single proposal will successively use the, the different instruments. Um, some of these teams are very big um, more than 100 people, um, international teams. There's certainly a, a strong component of um, scientists in the UK who are working on this, this telescope. And, and so these proposals then went in um, last November and they were reviewed by uh, a peer review. So panels of scientists would read these proposals and um, pick out the best projects and put those forward to be to be done. And what we what we do is we have a year of time that can be allocated to the proposals at one time. And then we'll in our first year we'll do those pro programs that were selected. There were 276 programs selected, um, ranging from fairly short time periods, you know, one or two hours, all the way up to, I think the biggest one we picked was um, just over 200 hours. And then um, we'll do those in the first year, but during that first year, we'll run the competition for the second year and uh, let people um, both propose new ideas and also follow up 
um, the, the initial discoveries that we're getting with the telescope. So you're right, it is a hard fought competition, um, very prestigious to win, win time with the web and um, you know they'll get great data and be able to start answering the important questions in astronomy. Among all of those different uses for it, have you got favorites out of the proposals? Um, besides my own science, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as the solar system goes, my, my, my own area of research actually involves studying comets and interstellar objects. So we're, we're trying to see you know, what, what these basically icy relics of our, our solar system are actually made of, you know, what processes are driving them, you know, crazy physics and dynamics and planetary astronomy, but also the really cool stuff like, oh, did it deliver water to Earth or other planets and, you know, organics, maybe something that looks like um, prebiotic chemistry, if you think about like Miller-Urey kind of, kind of craziness um, and fun. But, uh, one of the things that I think is going to be a really compelling project uh, for not only science, but also for the general public is we have some programs that are going to be looking at ocean worlds in our solar system. So like Europa and Enceladus. Just in case you're not completely up to speed on your solar system moons, Europa is a moon of Jupiter and Enceladus is a moon of Saturn. So with UST, we have the capability to not only observe these objects and image them, but we're also going to be collecting the spectra. And so we're looking for fingerprints of molecules that are going to be um, indicative of a unique kind of chemistry, maybe some bio biochemistry, maybe some prebiotic chemistry. Um, so looking for things like water, carbon dioxide, um, what processes are happening in these ocean worlds, studying the plumes that are coming out, seeing if those volcanic-like eruptions are putting um, new molecules, or you know, you can almost think like a lava flow, except for the ice on the surface of these bodies, um, and really trying to understand what's what's happening with them. Um, it's going to be really critical to do this for, especially Europa, um, with JWST early on, because they're developing the Europa Clipper, Clipper mission as we speak, and so optimizing the instrumentation for future missions is is something that JWST really has in its wheelhouse for planetary science. I look at my own research is to look at the other end of the universe. Um, so Stephanie looks at the closest things that Webb will observe, and I look at some of the farthest things. Um, so we do that by, um, by what's called deep surveys. So to look at something really far away, of course, we need to be able to see something that's really faint. And Webb was designed to, to look at things that are really faint. Uh, so following up to um, the faintest picture that humanity has ever taken, which is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, taken with the Hubble Space Telescope, following that up with, with other um, projects like that, we're going to point Webb at a few places on the sky for a really long time, just to kind of see what's there. And what we expect to see is um, when we when we find the most distant galaxies we can see, of course, because of the light travel time, we're looking backwards in time to when the universe was much, much younger. And we're trying to look back to within a couple or a few million years of the Big Bang, 13 and a half billion years ago, um, to when the first galaxies formed in the early universe. And that's that's my research. That's what I'm most excited about. There's actually a number of different projects that are de 
that have been selected that are taking different approaches. I'm involved with a couple of them. Um, I like to watch the, the results of, of the other projects. And um, there's a lot of synergy between these projects as well, because you want to, if you, if you see something in one part of the sky, you want to know whether it's typical. So you look in a different part of the sky to see whether you see similar types of objects. But I also want to throw in something um, where I'm not involved and I'm just kind of a fan of the research, and that's exoplanets. Um, so Stephanie looks at the planets in our own solar system, but there's loads of planets around other uh, stars that we are really just, um, there's a flood of, of information since the discovery of the first exoplanets um, about 25, 27 years ago. Um, and uh, Webb is just going to do some really amazing things with, with exoplanets. Um, so I, did, I, I study the, the distant galaxies. I, I think exoplanets are cool, and I like what Stephanie's doing too. Yeah, you and me both. One of the things that I'm really looking forward to is that ability to look into, peer into the atmospheres of exoplanets. Can you tell me a bit about how that's going to work? So it's basically the same way we can look at our own planets in the solar system. Um, so we're we're studying those atmospheres. Basically, the planet goes in front of its star. You can think of an eclipse. Um, and what we do is we can see how puffy the planet is. So maybe it has a really big atmosphere, like Jupiter or you know, Saturn, or maybe it doesn't have an atmosphere at all, like Mercury um, or Mars. And we can study the composition of that atmosphere as it goes through this um, phase of its, uh, you know, orbit. And by doing that, we can study the chemistry of that atmosphere. So as I was telling you at these wavelengths, we can study really important molecules for um, understanding atmospheric conditions um, and what processes could be occurring in or on that planet. Um, so even though, you know, everyone wants to look for life, um, we're not looking for life itself. We're looking for evidence of some perturbation in, in an atmosphere. Um, so we want to know whether or not the chemistry is unique, and that can be caused by various things, you know, geologic processing, impact events, um, weather, uh, all kinds of things causes crazy things, and, you know, life can as well. And so just by getting, you know, some indicators of what the chemistry looks like, that'll be something we can follow up with and, you know, get a short list of planets around other stars that we think are really compelling as far as their chemistry goes and follow that up with future facilities. Um, and, you know, maybe one day we'll, we'll get to a point where we can start saying, oh my goodness, there's satellites or whatever there that, that are crazy. Mm. I, I just, is there something, is it possibly something that's so odd, so peculiar and crazy that you might go back to that one year of planning and say, actually, we've got to go back to this sooner, or do they? everybody has to wait for the next year? That's what the annual um, call for proposals is, is all about. Um, we do have a small amount of time, a few hundred hours that's set aside for the discretion of the director of our science operations center um, to uh, to respond to things that are happening. A, a, um, a supernova goes off um, and we want to get the telescope onto that as quickly as possible. Um, we actually have two ways of doing that kind of thing. If people can anticipate that, they can write what's called a target of opportunity proposal to the regular call and say, 
if certain conditions are met during the year, activate our program and go and look at it. Or we have as a backup if something's really really happens and we want to get the telescope onto it. Um, we have this what's called director's discretionary time that um, the, the director of our science center can um, say, you know, this is so important. I'm going to use some of this discretionary time and we'll get onto it. A, a prime example of that process with Hubble was when Comet Shoemaker-Levy impacted into Jupiter. Um, that was an activation of, of you know, all of the telescopes in the world all, all pointed at that, that uh, at Jupiter at that time. And they got Hubble onto it as well, um, just within the time from when it was predicted to when it, when it actually happened and, and got some great results out of that. So yeah, we, we can do it if it's, if it's important and if it's rare, but we also have our process where we make sure that the competitive process lets us do the very best follow-up observations um, to, uh, to the discoveries. And you know, likewise, if, if Hubble discovers something, because um, Hubble's still going to keep going, mm. if Hubble discovers something, um, we'll follow it up with, with Webb in the following year, unless it's really time critical. Okay, so we've known and loved the Hubble Space Telescope for some time now. And JWST is often spoken about as the successor to it. So where is it different? Why is the instrumentation different and how are things improved? The differences between Webb and Hubble are that Webb has a bigger mirror. Webb is uh, optimized for the infrared, um, whereas Hubble is ultraviolet visible light and a little bit into the near infrared. Um, so there is some overlap. Um, Hubble can, can pick up in, in the ultraviolet and can see blue light and blue visible light, red, and then into the infrared. Webb has gold-coated mirrors and gold absorbs all of the colors um, bluer than gold. So, okay. <laughs> um, so gold, gold is very reflective in the infrared um, and it reflects gold-colored light and red-colored light. So, so Webb can see red visible light and goes into the infrared out to um, the, the wavelength range is 0.6 microns to 28 and a half microns um, into the infrared. 28 and a half is, is where we can see things that see the heat from things that are room temperature or a little bit, little bit colder than that. So, um, uh, so that's that's the big difference. Um, Webb has four cameras, four instruments. Um, the near infrared camera is going to be our main imager, taking a lot of the the pretty pictures that you will see. And um, even though it's infrared, we're still going to get great pictures, just like Hubble. So so the 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 uh, the people who are addicted to looking at Hubble pictures every day. We'll get that from Webb and they'll get it from both together um, mm. as long as both are operating together. Um, so that's the near infrared camera is our is our um, imager. It goes from 0.6 microns gold colored light out to five microns um, in the near infrared. We have a near infrared spectrograph is um, provided by the European Space Agency. So it was built in Europe. Um, there's a couple of components that we um, 
we made in the United States, but it's a European instrument. Um, that's got a really cool thing in it called a micro shutter array in which we have a quarter of a million little windows on a computer chip. Um, and we can open those windows where there's something that we want to look at, and we can close the windows to cut down the background and the overlap of the spectra. Um, so with this micro shutter array, we can get spectra of 100 galaxies at once, like in, for example, in the Hubble ultra deep field region, we can do 100 at once, whereas with Hubble, it could only do one, or because it was a long slit, we could maybe line it up with two. Um, oh. time. So that's a huge advantage. Um, we have uh, the mid-infrared instrument, which picks up at five microns and goes out to 28 and a half microns and can do both imaging pictures and spectroscopy um, at the longest wavelengths. That's, um, that's good for studying the molecules that Stephanie was talking about and um, things like forming stars and planetary systems within our own galaxy. And then also looking at, at um, all the other things that, that Webb looks at. And then the, the fourth instrument was provided by the Canadian Space Agency. It's part of our, it's our Canadian contribution. And it does two things. One is that it's the guider, which means that this camera will lock onto a bright star and keep the telescope pointed um, perfectly at our targets. Um, but the Canadians didn't just want to be part of the um, of enabling the science. They wanted to have their instrument do their do science as well. So on the other side of the optical bench, they stuck a science camera. And this has um, three specialized instrument modes for particular um, projects. One is to find distant galaxies um, with uh, particularly with the fundamental transition of hydrogen, which is called Lyman alpha, um, redshifted out into the, um, into the infrared because the galaxies are so distant. Um, there's a second mode that um, you wouldn't think we would do this with the space telescope, but it takes the image and puts it out of focus. So we will point this, this camera at a bright star, maybe even bright enough that you can actually see it with your naked eye um, and uh, spread the light, take it out of focus, spread the light over the whole detector and this way, and then look for, um, for uh, the, the dip in the total amount of light when a planet goes across the face of that star. So this is specialized for doing transiting planets of really bright or really nearby stars. Some of these stars, you know, are, are stars that have names. Um, and so that's going to be our, our uh, most powerful way of studying the atmospheres of exoplanets, because um, if it's a bright star, it's nearby, it's got lots of light, lots of photons, we can get a really good signal for when the planet goes across the face of the star and the light goes from the star goes through the atmosphere of the planet and then into our telescope. And then the final um, uh, specialized mode for the Canadian instrument is um, a, a way of seeing planets that are, or planets or, or dust disks that are really close to the star. It's a, a type of interferometry. 
pornography. Brilliant. And we're talking on the 18th of January. So by the time people are listening to this, the telescope is going to be 1.5 million, or by the time it gets to L2, it's going to be 1.5 million miles away from Earth. Can you tell me about that journey from launch to that point in space? And are we safe now? Well, Stephanie's in the Mission Control Center, so I think she should answer that question. Sure, sure. We're, we are safe. Um, right? <laughs> we are on our journey uh, as, as I'm sitting here working in the operations center. We'll be in orbit around a, a point called the second Lagrange point. So it's a Earth-Sun gravitational um, that makes it uh, far easier for us to stay in that position because of this gravitational um, attraction. Um, so we don't have to you know, burn fuel constantly to stay in orbit, um, but it also protects us. It's far enough away from the Earth and the moon um, that we don't get radiation from the Earth and the moon. So as John was saying, or excuse me, as Jonathan was saying, uh, we're very sensitive to thermal radiation, so any heat. Um, so being further away, it kind of gives us a, a nice barrier from being too close to, to heat sources, such as the Earth and um, the moon. And also in this orbit, uh, we can maintain our, our position in the sky so that we always have the sun on one side of the spacecraft and you know the dark, cold sky on the other side. So this is why we have a funny looking boat-shaped telescope. Um, so we, we can always uh, make sure we're protected and, and keep the optics and the instruments cold. Um, we will have to, unfortunately, use fuel to stay in that orbit, um, but we don't have to do it quite as regularly as we would if we weren't in a gravitational set point. Um, but that's mostly to unload momentum. We will be uh, you know, building momentum as we turn and point the telescope. Um, but also because we have this giant solar you know, uh, sun shield, it, it acts like a solar sail. So the sun radiation pressure actually pushes on it. So we have to maintain that orbit and, and correct it so that we know where we are in the sky. Um, and also just to stay there and um, maintain. But um, it's already been announced that uh, we've, we've really been able to manage our fuel very well uh, throughout the launch and as we're going <clears throat> to this point. Um, so it's, unfortunately we are fuel limited lifetime uh, for the mission. Uh, so we, once it runs out, obviously we can't stay in L2 anymore. We can't unload momentum. We can't control the telescope. So uh, once we are out of fuel, we don't have a mission. But um, by managing the fuel efficiently, um, we'll have longer operations than what we originally planned. Um, so it's going to be well over 10 years. So it's going to be great. Oh, it certainly is. Now, getting a telescope to that point in space from Earth is is difficult, right? Can you talk me through that? The, the telescope was launched on Christmas Day, Christmas morning, um, Christmas morning in uh in the United States, Christmas afternoon in the UK. Um, it was launched on Christmas Day on a, a Ariane 5 rocket. Um, that was part of the European contribution to the mission. Um, very uh, important contribution. And um, we got a beautiful launch. Um, and most of the uh, energy that the observatory take will need to get to L2 was provided by that rocket. We started out really fast and um, we're kind of climbing a gravitational hill. And as we go, we're slowing down because we're climbing up that hill. Um, so, but, 
but we started off with a whole lot of momentum and we're, um, we're using that momentum to get to L2. There were um, two burns of the onboard rockets um, to correct this uh, trajectory. Um, the first one, so the, the L2 point is, it's what's called a saddle point. If you can picture a saddle that um, you fall down in one direction, but towards the earth and away from the earth, you're climbing the hill. And we wanna climb that hill, but we don't wanna go over the top and start drifting too far away past the L2 point. That's because our, our, the onboard rockets are on the sun side or the earth side of our sun shield. They're not on the telescope side. So we can always speed up, but we can't slow down. We would have to point, you know, turn the telescope mm. towards the sun in order to uh, slow down. We don't want to do that. So we're constantly trying to just get to where we need to go, but not go too far. So we did that with the rocket. Um, this was all planned and the rocket went, went perfectly. Um, the, uh, there was a correction 12 hours after launch to uh, get just the right amount of energy at that, that we needed at that point. Then two days after that, there was the second correction. And then at launch plus 29 days, um, which is coming up not too long from now, we're gonna have the third correction um, the third firing of the thrusters to put us into our final orbit. Um, so those three burns of the onboard thrusters um, are, are just kind of tweaking up all of the energy that, the, that was given to us by the rocket. Um, so mostly, and if, if you want to, if you want to see where Web is, we have a web page that says, where is Web? Um, and lots of people have been watching this. Um, that tells you how, how close we are to where we're, we're going, how fast it's going, and then also a whole lot of information about what's happening day to day on uh, the, um, the, what we call commissioning, the deployments and commissioning of the telescope. Quite a Christmas present for the world's astronomers as the James Webb Space Telescope begins its life heading towards deep space. So we need to talk about the launch and it obviously it happened on Christmas Day and it was delayed from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day fairly last minute and there were a few delays before that of course but that timing on Christmas Day it just felt like for nerds like me right it just felt like a wonderful Christmas present and I wonder how it was for you who've been working on it for all that time. I cried. Go ahead. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> um it, so uh, with the pandemic, unfortunately, um, launch viewing opportunities and events and things have all kind of been put on the hiatus. And that was really unfortunate to not get to be with all of our colleagues and, you know, share in the excitement of the launch, especially with people like Jonathan um, that's been working on it for decades. Um, I've only been on the project for 10 years and I'm already very emotionally attached. So uh, his perspective is probably <clears throat> well beyond um, but I, I definitely, I was very emotional about it um, for the success of the team, for the success of the mission, for the success of NASA, for the success of ESA, the Canadian Space Agency, and all of astronomy and planetary science. Um, 
this is going to, as you said, it's, it is the next thing. This is how we learn more. And it's very, very exciting. And being a part of it and watching the success of it, and more importantly, watching the, the solar array actually deploy, which was amazing capture, an extreme amount of fun. Um, I cried again when that happened. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was very thrilled and I'm sure Jonathan's Beyond. Yeah, I I think one thing that's really telling is that um, it, at the launch site itself, um, when the launch happened, everybody cheered, and I think you know worldwide, lots of people were cheered. But I, I wasn't the, in the control center, but in the control center, the launch happened, and people were still kind of watching. And then half an hour later, when that solar array folded out that's when it, the, the control center went into bedlam because, you know, without that solar array, we would have a seven hour mission. That's how long <laughs> the batteries would last without, without additional uh, charging power. So um, the fact that we actually could, could see that on the camera um, was just amazing. And um, yeah, it, the whole thing was, was very moving. I, I personally actually was watching with my family, um, went to stay with my parents for, um, for the holiday and for the launch. And, uh, you know, I, I, that, that, um, that was also important because, uh, you know, your family um, on a mission like this supports, uh, provides a whole lot of support for um, you know, like this current period where we're doing shifts in the control center, sometimes, you know, missing, missing dinner like I will tonight because Stephanie's in there till four and I'm picking up from four until midnight tonight. Um, and uh, everybody's a part of this. This, this is a, a, a mission that belongs to the world. Um, we have, um, you know, the NASA European and Canadian space agencies all working together. There are scientists around the world that are waiting for, uh, for the data. And um, I think we are also able to bring the public along because this is a, a fantastic accomplishment for the world. We're, um, we're able to work together and do something that turns out to be really, really, really hard. Yeah, it is hard, isn't it? I, I was going to talk to you about the delays and things but it sort of feels now we're in this post-launch phase that it's just all in the past at least that's how it is to me so i would say yeah i would say that um when you put a telescope in space it has to work and that's what that's what we did we uh we have spent years testing this thing um the process for building up a, a complex observatory, like the you know, detector, and we test it. We make sure it's going to work in a vacuum, work at the operating temperature, um, and we shake it and we blast it with sound, like it's going to get on the launch. Um, and then we put that detector into the camera and we shake that and we blast it with sound and we test it in vacuum. We put the camera into the instrument box. We go through the testing process. We add it together with the telescope, more testing, put it onto the spacecraft. Um, and that process takes a long time, but because we've tested it at every level, um, 
we've now get, we're now getting the payback when, when it's out there in space and we're doing the deployments and they all went perfectly. That means that we did the right amount of testing and we took the time we needed in order to make sure that that was to go smoothly. Um, so that's, that has to do with the, the schedule. Um, we, we kept working on it until we were sure it was going to work. And now we're, we're getting the benefit of all of that testing. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the, certainly that final delay put it onto Christmas Day, didn't it? It was just, it was just too special. It was too brilliant. I was, oh, what was for me? I suppose you were both working, were you? So I was, I was online. I was watching it. I was um, checking my email, you know, but I also managed to spend, spend the holiday with my family. I, I think I had six interviews that day. <laughs> so uh, I was working, I was watching the telemetry um, and watching everything up until mid afternoon, I guess, Christmas day. And then I finally got to Christmas with my, my family. Um, but yeah, it, it, and it, you know, as much as I want to say, you know, I'm not working when I'm not working, I, I'm lying because I'm so excited about it. I'm always, I'm always <clears throat> checking my email. I'm always logging in just to see where we are, what's going on, what's happening. Um, can't help yourself. It's, it, I mean, it's an obsession now. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine. And you've waited, but you personally, ten years working on this project, and we've got a few days as we're recording this to getting to L two. But how long is it after that before we start getting data? So we won't well, get data until about next summer, or sorry, this summer. Uh, we have to fully commission the telescope. So we have to turn the instruments on, um, make sure that they're working properly. We have to focus the mirror. Um, we have to make sure that all the modes of the telescope are working. Um, you know, it's down enough um, that you know, we get sufficient signal to noise. Um, we have to understand the contamination. We have to our calibration. Um, and all of that takes a, quite a while, um, just considering the complexity of the observatory. Um, we're, we're still kind of in the deployment phase, even though they're not major deployments, we're you know, getting the mirrors ready so that we can start focusing them. Um, and that's sort of what we're doing right now is, is getting them ready to, to start working on them. Um, and that process is, is iterative. Once we start focusing it, you, know, you have to take an image and then you have to move the mirrors. And then you have to take another image and make sure you move them the right way. And, you know, there's a whole optimization process. And so it's quite a long time, unfortunately. Um, but once we, you know, give our final blessing of the telescope, um, next summer science operations begin, or the summer, excuse me, I'm so still in 2021. Um, it's not, you know, March yet. So even my checks say 2021. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So let me let me jump in and tell tell you a little bit more about this process of what um, Stephanie called focusing the telescope. So the primary mirror is made up of eighteen individual mirror segments, hexagonal segments. Um, you know, you can kind of see in the iconic pictures. Um, each of those segments is supported uh, by six, actually seven actuators that can move it in um, seven different ways. So what does it mean seven different ways? So the first six are kind of the X, Y, Z of um, the, the normal positioning, but we can also tip them in one direction and tilt it 
in the orthogonal direction and we can rotate the, the mirror segment. And that's six of the actuators do those six different motions. We have a seventh actuator that kind of pokes it at the back and changes the radius of curvature. So we can actually change the shape of each of these mirror segments. And then the secondary mirror also has um, the six actuators. Uh, so in all, there's 132 um, actuators that, that we use to move all of these 18 segments. And what we need to do is we need to take these 18 individual mirrors and turn them into one perfect mirror. And by perfect, I really mean perfect because um, we have to get the overall bouncing of the light off of each of these mirrors to be um, one seventh of a wavelength of light. So 150 nanometers, one seventh of a, of a, um, of a micrometer accuracy. And to do this, each of these, um, each of these actuators can go in steps of 10 nanometers. And, and that's kind of a, a number that, or a, a unit that we don't use a whole lot, 10 nanometers. Um, but to put that in perspective, if we took the primary mirror of Webb and it was the size of the United States, so the distance between like Los Angeles and New York, um, we blew it up to that size, we could move the um, actuators by 10 centimeters for <laughs> Wow. Okay. And overall, we have to get them to within position, um, their, their perfect position of about a meter. Um, well, so th this is over, over the size of the United States. So this is, um, this is a process that will take uh, three months, um, starting pretty soon at, at about launch plus 30 days. For the next three months, um, we're going to be going through what, what's called mirror phasing. And it's not just focus. Um, it's, it's getting the mirrors to be in focus to within this fraction of a wavelength of the, the focus of, the, of the, all the other mirrors. Um, that's going to take three months and then two months for, the, um, for turning on the instruments. And that takes us to uh, kind of the end of June, early July. Well, this is clearly a massive undertaking and it's it led, the whole project is led by NASA with contributions from ESA and the Canadian Space Agency. But the, how many people would be involved in, in something like that process over the coming months? We typically, I think we're typically going to have something like um, between one and 200 people working during commissioning. Um, some of them will be at the Mission Operations Center and uh, others will be uh, remote online. Um, Due to COVID, we did have to change our plan. The original plan was basically have everybody there in one big room with each their little cubicle. Um, those cubicles are looking pretty sparse as we keep people, you know, uh, two meters apart. And um, so we spread out within the operations center, and and then also a lot of people are supporting um, uh, remotely, either from their home or from their um, their home company. Um, but one to 200 people are involved in the, um, will be involved kind of day to day. But I think you also need to include the couple of thousand people that have been working on our telescope for the last two decades. Um, for this process of lining up the mirrors, we actually 
built a one sick scale model of the telescope um, to, uh, to test out the algorithms, just to develop the computer programs that, that we're gonna go through this. One sick scale was um, big enough to have full size actuators working in the, in the way that they, um, they were gonna do it. And then, you know, we shine in, just in a, in a laboratory, we shine light down onto that mirror and read out the cameras and, and um, developed the process that we're gonna be going through on this mission over the years. Oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I, I often think when I talk to people like you that I really did choose the wrong career, but it's wonderful to talk to you about it. Uh, you know, like I said, I was watching the launch with um, with my family and um, my sister was kind of, you know, posting pictures on, on, on social media. And one of her friends um, came back with the comment, Wow, your brother is a whole lot cooler than my brother. <laughs> Thank you so much to Stephanie and Jonathan, project scientists for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA, for talking to me. And, of course, we'll be back next month with something else from this wonderful world of physics. If you are interested in this telescope, then you should definitely check out the January edition of the Physics World magazine, where you'll find a host of articles and features all about it and the science that it's doing. And of course, be sure to check out the Physics World website, physicsworld.com, where you'll find many of those features and articles and a video made by James Dacey, which features footage from that launch in French Guiana, as well as animations demonstrating how the telescope has unfolded and is going to go about its work now it's out there in space. And as James is the very person who'll be posting this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast onto the website, I'll just take this moment to remind James to post a link to that video on the page where you'll find this episode. And thank you very much to NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center for the audio of that launch. And most of all, thank you very much for listening. Physics World